Here and now, the program featuring the news and interests of the African-American community. Here's your host, Sandra Bookman. Coming up on this half-hour edition of Here and Now, the fight for tenure among black orchestral musicians. Some of the nation's most esteemed institutions accused of falling short when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Also ahead, how the Harlem Heritage Markers Project is keeping the community's history alive, plus the sweet story of three brothers making world-class chocolate in the Bronx. That's all ahead on Here and Now. Some highly trained, talented classical musicians are calling for a day of solidarity as they demand the respect and an equal treatment. According to the Black Orchestral Network, musicians of color are disproportionately denied tenure by some of the country's most esteemed cultural institutions. Joining us this afternoon to explain why this is happening, why it's so important, and what needs to be done about it is the founder of the Black Orchestral Network, Shay Scruggs. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Yes, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I got to be honest with you. Just learning about this subject matter was a surprise to me. Uh, I think there are a lot of things that we all sort of took for granted when we see folks of color in that orchestra, uh, you know, wherever it is in the country. We just feel very proud about the talent and seeing them there. But explain to me why musicians of color are, are, are being denied tenure and, and how long has this been an issue? Right. Well, it's um, it's unfortunately been an issue as, as long as orchestras have been around. Um, but that's that's the case for black people in the United States. Um, our, the story of black people in the U.S. is a story of of, of struggling for what um, you know, for to be able to advance and to be able to get our voices and our and our talents out there. And so um, if it's all right, I'd like to start a little bit just by giving you some background on the Black Orchestral Network. Perfect. Mm -hmm. um, so the Black Orchestral Network, or BON as we call it, is a community of Black classical musicians that is dedicated to bringing about greater equity and inclusion um, for Black people in classical music. We essentially engage in three uh, core areas of work. Uh, the first thing we do is essentially we build community and we do that through things like community conversations and convenings um, which are designed to forge strong connections and a culturally affirming network for black musicians uh, the second big thing that we do is essentially advocacy going back to um, what we were talking about at the beginning uh, we essentially what we do we call raise our voices where we amplify the priorities and perspectives of black musicians and we essentially have to pressure the industry to acknowledge and include the black experience in that story of what it means to be an American orchestra. Um, and so within our own network and within the classical music field writ large, we collect data to build an accurate picture of what the needs and priorities of black orchestral musicians are. And then that last thing, which is kind of where we started is black musicians have been around really as long as orchestras have been around. Um, so the third thing we do is tell our stories which includes producing creative content that features black musicians basically telling their stories in their own voice. And th the primary vehicle for that is a podcast called Black Music Scene, uh, which features black classical musicians telling their own stories. I know that you, you, you've got plans to send out a public letter to institutions to charge them with, um, you know, clearing this issue up. 
Talk to me about that. What's happening here? Why this lack of tenure for musicians that it sounds to me like that are certainly qualified? Oh, absolutely. So um, the we we're, we're writing an open letter and it's called Dear American Orchestras. And it's essentially an open letter to the field writ large designed to highlight themes um, that are affecting black musicians and have been for some time. Um, those themes are drawn from our many community conversations and our collective lived experiences. I'm one of I'm one of um, nine founding members of the Black Orchestral Network, and um, we have at this point hundreds of, of members in, in our network. And essentially, when we come together and we talk about the things that are are facing Black musicians in terms of tenure, just to talk a little bit about what tenure is, it's very similar to tenure in in an academic environment where essentially you go through an audition and you you are hired, but then um, you're not really a permanent member of that orchestra until you are awarded tenure. And mm -hmm. there's there's a process for doing that, but that process is typically in most orchestras not very transparent. So you can have things like um, sort of poorly defined standards. You can have conflicts of interest. You can have uh, bias driving inequitable outcomes. These can range from colleagues who are blatantly racist to colleagues to more covert racism, whether it's unconscious or not. Um, and so what we're doing is we're writing this letter to one established both to the orchestral field, but also to the, to the wider um, community, what tenure is and how we can make it stronger and make it and make it better for classical black classical musicians, but better for the field overall, because we believe very strongly that American orchestras cannot truly be American without the without the equitable participation of black musicians. So that's really what we're trying to accomplish with those letters. Yeah, and, and what you point out is exactly right. We've seen this, this in other areas in society. The goalpost is always moving. So if it's a way of keeping out, well, I don't know, undesirables, whatever. Um, by moving the goalpost, you don't know what you're reaching for. Um, Talk to me a little bit, and we are running tight on time here. How many, uh, give me an estimate, if, if you will, of how many uh, black orchestral musicians we're talking about in the country. We know they're there, but there is power in numbers. Yeah, they're, they're, what, I can, what I can say, while we don't know the exact number of black orchestral musicians, we know there are thousands of us. And what I can say is while over 13% of the American population is, is black or African-American. Less than 2% of, of classical musicians in full-time orchestras are black. That right there is basically, you know, statistical proof that there's inequitable access and inequitable representation in, in orchestras. Um, over the last 10, 15 years, there's been a lot of interest in the orchestral field to talk a lot about um, what they call the pipeline basically framing the lack of representation among black musicians and orchestras as an issue of access to orchestras. And while we very much advocate for interest in pipeline programs and creating you know, more, more programs for young musicians and better access into orchestras, we feel very strongly that that's not the whole narrative. That's not the whole story. There absolutely are black musicians who are in orchestras and they are either pushed out or exit of their own free will because the American orchestra workplaces have many issues around tenure. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to establish and get out there with this letter, because many people, even people in orchestras, aren't aware of the things that are going on. We don't tend to think of that sometimes when we're looking at the arts, particularly 
particularly classical music. You see folks there, you think, oh my God, they're doing great. But there is much more to the story, which is essentially what you've been sharing with us today. I want to give folks your website, blackorchestralnetwork.org. You talk about this issue, this issue and others. You also told me that you've got an Instagram account, Black Orchestral Network, where you introduce folks to some of the musicians we're talking about. And I know that uh, the date of that letter, you're going to be publishing uh, that letter you're sending out. What folks can remember is that is the um, is our day of solidarity mm -hmm. is January 29th. And you can check out our website, Black Orchestral Network, to see details. But there are many things that folks can do. They can co-sign our open letter. They can check us out on social media. They can follow us on social media. And they can register for one of our community conversations um, or register to receive our newsletters that highlight issues of interest for black orchestral musicians. All right, Shay Scruggs, thank you for being with us this afternoon. That letter's going out tomorrow, that day of solidarity, January 29th. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I got a feeling we are going to be following up with you on this conversation. Thank you. Sandra Bookman and Here and Now will be right back. At a time when black history is being pulled from school curriculums, one organization is on a mission to keep Harlem's history front and center. While We Are Still Here, Inc. is installing 25 historic markers to honor those who have given the community its unique character. It's called the Sign of the Times Harlem Heritage Markers Project. And here to tell us more is the founder and executive director of While We Are Still Here, Karen D. Taylor. So nice to meet you. Thank you very much for having me, and it's nice to meet you too. And now, so where did the idea for, for, well, not only for the Markers Project, but also for While We Are Still Here come from? Well, uh, it began in 2015 when I moved into 555 Edgecombe Avenue. Mm. And after a while, I realized that it was this very historic building. Mm -hmm. Um, I would run into these elderly people. They had this comportment, and I found out that some of them were uh, cotton club cuties <laughs> from back in the day. Mm -hmm. they, you know, they had this dancer kind of comportment, bearing. this bearing, mm -hmm. this comportment about them. And they would say, you know, Paul Robeson lived there, and Joe Lewis lived in apartment eight, so-and-so, and... -so, and Lena Horne would come visit him, and Count Basie lived here, and Billy Strayhorn lived here. And I'm like, wow, that is extraordinary. And when I first moved there, like 30 years prior, I told my husband at the time, I said, I've got to do an oral history. Mm -hmm. And since I'm a great procrastinator, it took <laughs> like 25 years to actually do the oral histories. And I'm so happy I did them because we lost a lot of elders during those previous years. Mm -hmm. Um, and so essentially, while we're still here, was founded to codify the history of Harlem. Uh, we initially started with 409 and 555 Edgecombe Avenue, but people, the community said, look, Harlem has this extraordinary history. You can't just do two buildings. Mm -hmm. So we expanded our mission to include all of Harlem. And so that's where the um, markers come in, the signs of the times. Um, we will be installing 25 markers throughout Harlem over 2024. And the brainchild of it, I would say that the bringing it to fruition, it had to do with Brent Legs of the African American Cultural Heritage Action Project mm -hmm. of the National Heritage Trust. Yes. Uh, 
the board members and myself, while we are still here, we went to this board training in Boston. Brent was there. We stayed the weekend. We went through the workshops. And basically, he says, at the end, what would you like to see in Harlem? And I said, markers. He said, okay. Weeks later, Sandra, I got an email from a foundation saying, Brent Legg said that we should help you put your markers up. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we'll be doing. And you've started already. Several markers, what, four? How uh, four, four, five markers, actually. Okay. We've mm -hmm. unveiled five markers. Yeah. Um, on August 13th of 2023, what we did, we had a whole bus tour to four different sites. Mm -hmm. We called that particular event, Lift Every Black Voice of Fire, and we honored Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, uh, Larry Neal, and Jay Rosamond Johnson. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the audience probably knows Marcus Garvey. Mm -hmm. He's this extraordinary um, historic leader who found the Universal Negro Improvement Association mm -hmm. that he, uh, in Harlem, he founded it and he brought it to Harlem and over the years he had garnered millions of members in the UNIA. And we went from the Marcus Garvey site to the Malcolm X funeral site and that's where Ossie Davis actually called him our black shining prince in that beautiful eulogy he did. And then we went to J. Rosamond Johnson's place and his most famous composition is lift every voice and sing. And he was really, during his time, he was really a very famous musician and composer, you know, during the turn of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And he was very clear about the fact that the music of the enslaved, the spirituals and the blues would become American music. Yes. And that and was, what, what happened. that's what happened, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. And explain, if you will, why it is so important to you to have these markers around Harp, why is it important for people to know who was here? Because history is important, history matters, and Harlem was this very influential incubator around the world, around the, the African diaspora, in terms of politics, in terms of culture, in terms of art. It was extremely influential. Um, of course, we know the Harlem Renaissance, mm -hmm. but there were things that occurred beyond the Renaissance. Yeah, many things. Many things that occurred beyond the Renaissance, and we'd really like to, you know, shed some light on those kinds of things. How do you choose who to be, who you will honor, who gets a marker? Okay, um, we actually had a professionally facilitated public workshop at the George Bruce Library on 125th Street, and people came. And, you know, we went through this whole process, write down who you'd like to see. We probably had like 50 or 60 people on a list, mm -hmm. and we had to whittle that down to 25 people. Um, but an initial list that while we are still here got, came from um, Dr. William Sorrell. He's a Harlem resident, has lived in Harlem since like 1970. He's Professor Emeritus uh, from Lehman College, African American Studies. He sent me a list that had probably around 150 people who had lived in Harlem at some time or another. All kinds of people, mm -hmm. white people, black people, Japanese people, Chinese people. 
And so since we're kind of more focused on African-American history, black history, we're kind of, you know, bringing those into the forefront. And so at this point, we've already got five markers up, so we can expect 20 more, most of those in 2024, mm -hmm. correct? Yes, but let me say we, we unveiled, unveiled, unveiled say. the markers. Not unveiled yeah, the markers. We, yes, they haven't been installed yet, having to do, it has to do with the permits in New York City. Mm -hmm. And so basically by probably March or April, the first five will go up. Should be in place. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. What does it feel like to see, to know that those markers are going up and to know that you are really informing and educating a lot of people about, you know, who walked the same streets as they did, who stood on the same corner, who lived in the same building? It, it, I, it's, you see how I'm getting kind of apoplectic right now? I will be so happy to be able to contribute to the understanding of black people's contributions to New York City and the nation and the world. I'll just be extremely satisfied that that's happened. And I'll send folks to HarlemNYC.org yes. to find out more about um, this project. It's yes. this historic marker project, Signs of the Times. Harlem Heritage Markers. Karen D. Taylor, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. What a great, what a great initiative. Thank you. Sorely needed. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back. Move over, Godiva and Hershey, three brothers in the Bronx, are making their mark in the world of fine chocolate. The company is committed to not only quality, but also to being environmentally and socially responsible. With us today is one of the co-founders of Soul Cacao, Daniel Maloney. Correct. So nice to meet you. Pleasure, pleasure so to be here. Three brothers, mm -hmm. why chocolate? So really the inspiration stemmed from stories passed down about my great-grandmother. She was a cacao farmer in Trinidad and Tobago. And really growing up in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, we would always be curious about animals and food production. And we just saw this opportunity to continue on a legacy she started, you know, way back when, and really bring it to light um, in the brand Soul Cacao Craft Chocolates. And so you're sitting around, you're talking, my grandmother used to do this. Where do you start? Uh, so where to start? It really starts with um, sort of what is our passion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, right around 2009, everyone was more food conscious. So they were asking, is this organic? Um, who's growing this? And it was in that moment we realized the shock in fact, which was the average age of cacao farmers is roughly 68 years old. Mm -hmm. And that was like a light bulb moment for us because we realized that if we were to continue on this legacy, we would also be supporting the next generation of cacao farmers. And really that blossomed into us going down this rabbit hole of um, learning about the history of cacao, mm -hmm. um, how chocolate is produced from the bean, and it's really in our the name of the brand, Soul Cacao, which is sun and cacao. So we're, we're shining light on that chocolate making process. And letting everybody know about That's its right. purity. The purity and All the right. wonders of chocolate. And so where, where do your beans come from? It's a I understand a variety of places. Absolutely. So uh, cacao beans grow 20 degrees north and south of the, the equator. Mm -hmm. So um, we primarily work with four origins of Madagascar, Ecuador, Peru, and Colombia. And each one tastes completely different. And that's sort of what 
our brand really highlights, it's the nuance of chocolatey flavor. So Madagascar naturally tastes like raisin, plums, and cherries. Mm -hmm. Or you could get something more earthier like our Columbia, which you get notes of caramel, some cinnamon notes, and a little bit of spice. And Traditionally, you would assume chocolate is a singular flavor, mm -hmm. but through our chocolate making process, we're able to highlight those nuances. That from the different regions. From the different so regions. So which is the one that, the region that most people seem to gravitate to initially? Initially, I would say people love Madagascar because it naturally tastes like a raisinette. Mm -hmm. um, but our best seller currently is our Columbia. It just has these like toasty, earthy notes that I think people, you know, are pleasantly surprised when they try the chocolate. You know, it's, I, I've never heard people explain chocolate that way to me because mm -hmm. I didn't realize that beans from different regions have a sort of different, almost like wine. That's right. They have a different underlying taste. And I guess that's from the ter terroir or whatever right. they yeah, say. Absolutely. I'm not a farmer, obviously. <laughs> and how difficult uh, was it uh, for you and your brothers being here in the Bronx? I mean, you have this family history right. to, uh, you know, make these connections, uh, get established. Mm -hmm. You know, be able to to get enough beans to to make this this company of yours a reality. Yeah, and you know, before being here today, my middle brother Nicholas he shared you know four four key words. He said you know you got to have faith, you got to be persistent, you got to have you know um, so you got to be persistent, you got to be courageous, and more importantly, you got to be uh, consistent. My brother was just really highlighting um, you know where to start and really where to start is just we had a vision um, well thought out maybe 10 years 20 years and we said you know what this is a lifestyle that we could see ourselves really being in mm -hmm. and really it started with curiosity um, really being curious about um, our family history and really about the cacao bean and ultimately the traditional and the legacy that my grandmother, I believed, hoped uh, that our family would get wind of. And then it came to passion, which was really struggling and overcoming the many obstacles just to make our first bar. It took us four years mm -hmm. of just hard work and yeah. failing quickly. And then lastly, it's the legacy, like why, are we, why do we want to make chocolate? And really it's to continue our great-grandmother's legacy. Mm -hmm. And secondly, um, which is in our mission, which is to inspire the next generation of chocolate eaters, chocolate makers, and chocolatiers yeah. in the Bronx and beyond. Now, I said early on that you guys, you, it's great tasting, mm -hmm. but it's also important to you that you are environmentally conscious and socially conscious. Right. Now, are, are we talking about when it comes to your beans, organic farming? Yeah, so it's a couple of things. So it's organic farming, so we only work with organically certified cacao farms mm -hmm. because we want to start at the soil, the soil being yeah. the heart of the quality of the beans. Yeah. And then secondly, we look at, um, you know, we go beyond fair trade. So when we buy our cacao beans, we're paying three times the market price uh, to give the farmers a livable wage so they're able to, you know, continue to do their work. And us as chocolate makers, we look to elevate that hard work and shine light on it um, mm -hmm. when people try to chocolate, of course. You know, you're starting a new business. All of those things certainly add to the price tag, but it was important enough for you mm -hmm. guys to do it the right way? That's right. So it's the right way, and also the price that we price our chocolate at, it's how it's supposed to be priced. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, um, what you're paying for is cacao content. Um, but most chocolates, most of the brands out there, um, 
you can't really say it's it's chocolate. Um, it's a bunch of stuff. It's hard to pronounce, and that's why we only make chocolate with three ingredients. So what you're tasting is how chocolate was enjoyed back in the day. So and so, where can we find Soul Cacao? Yeah, so you can find Soul Cacao. Uh, the best way to find us is online um, at our website www.soulcacao.com. Um, okay, you, all, you throw you stole my thunder. No, no. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, and, uh, you could also find us. Um, um, you really find us at the biggest store we're in today is with Target. We're in mm -hmm. over 150 Target stores. We're also sold at Whole Foods in the Northeast and a bunch of specialty uh, stores throughout the tri-state area. I, I, I just think it's fantastic. <laughs> and the fact that you're doing it, three brothers, three brothers <laughs> from the Bronx, <laughs> from the Bronx <laughs> is even more fantastic. And mm -hmm. I, I got a feeling that you guys have some other things on your plate oh, yeah. that you're probably just not ready to share with that's us right, just That's right, that's right. Be on the lookout, yeah. All right, Daniel, thank you so, be, thank you so much, much for being with us. And again, that website is soulcacao.com, mm -hmm. all right? That's right? Target and Whole Foods. And Whole Foods, all yes. Right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can watch at abc7ny.com or you can listen to our podcast wherever you subscribe. If you'd like to comment or share your story, email us at abc7ny or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X. I'm Sandra Bookman. Enjoy the rest of your day.